You're going to love this. Just love it. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some of our important recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. On today's show, House Democrats on the Judiciary Committee on Wednesday voted along party lines to pass a resolution finding Trump's Attorney General and personal fixer William Barr in contempt of Congress. That was after Barr's Department of Justice refused to turn over the unredacted version of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report on alleged election interference by Russia in the 2016 campaign. Now that the Judiciary Committee has voted to send that contempt resolution to the full House for a vote, it's a good time to revisit Brad's conversation with former General Counsel of the House Judiciary Committee, Ted Kahlo, about what that means and what might happen next. But first, in the wake of recent school shootings at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte last week and the shooting at a suburban school in Denver this week, author and gun reform advocate Igor Volsky, founder of Guns Down America, has some bold proposals for what we can do as a nation to stop the epidemic of gun violence in America. So please sit back and enjoy today's Bradcast Recounted. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, less than one month following the horrific massacres at two Muslim mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, by an Australian white supremacist who killed 50 and wounded another 50 in a matter of minutes, a sweeping new ban on all military-style semi-automatic weapons was adopted by New Zealand's parliament and signed into law. Well, that was easy. The new rules are aimed at removing semi-automatic firearms from circulation through a buyback scheme, uh, uh, prohibition, and harsh prison sentences. The law uh, prohibits semi-automatic firearms, magazines, and parts that can be used to assemble prohibited firearms. New Zealand police began preparations for the mass buyback scheme, advising that amnesty is now in place for the newly prohibited weapons, which are to be turned over to law enforcement to be melted down and destroyed forever. The hand-in amnesty will be in place for at least six months and protects firearms holders with, quote, good intent, according to law enforcement officials. But those who break the new laws will face between two and ten years in jail. Lawmakers on Wednesday in New Zealand almost unanimously passed the legislation by a parliamentary vote of 119 to 1. The bill was first introduced on April 1. Its passage in barely 10 days 
has surprised even the most ardent gun safety advocates. But yes, it was just that easy. The ban comes several decades after a mass shooting in neighboring Australia, which resulted in a similar ban there, which resulted in zero mass shootings since that ban was put in place. Meanwhile, back here in the gun capital of the world, the good old U.S. of A., we see some 32,000 gun deaths per year, countless mass shootings by the very same weapons now banned in Australia and New Zealand. And yet lawmakers can't even get a vote in both houses of Congress for something as seemingly benign as a universal background check for all gun sales. Why? Well, it's certainly not because the American people are against such an idea. They support background checks by huge numbers across all political parties, even including members of the powerful weapons lobbyists at the NRA, while their leadership opposes any and all such gun safety measures. Its uh, members decidedly do not. A majority of them even support a full ban on military-style assault weapons and... As popular as such common-sense legislation may be right here in the U.S., it's even more popular specifically among new voters. Earlier this year, Axios's uh, Steve Levine reported that the issue appears to unite the very generation of voters that many Democratic hopefuls for the 2020 presidential election appear to be, pardon the pun, targeting this year. To a degree not entirely fathomable to older Americans, Levine writes, the defining issue for today's youth, uh, youth aged 14 to 29, crossing race, age, gender and political affiliation, whether rural or urban, is the long wave of deadly school shootings. That's according to new polling suggesting a stark new generational divide that may influence U.S. politics for years to come. Emphasis on May. Uh, John Delavolpe, uh, the CEO of Social Sphere and the polling chief at the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics, says an older generation would not understand walking into a classroom and thinking, this could be a really easy room for someone to shoot up. The same daily weight on an adult's uh, shoulders over bills or taxes is what children feel about living or dying at this point, according to a student at Ohio State University who spoke with Della Volpe. Their crucible differs sharply from the prior generations, he told Axios. The issue connects young Americans unlike anything except maybe 9-11 in the last 20 years. Among their findings, 68 percent said school shootings are the most important issue facing the U.S., 68 percent, and 70 percent advocated stricter gun control. Seventy nine percent said they would support issuing gun licenses under the same regime governing driver's licenses. For coming of age youth, students being killed in school shootings has become uh, formative in their thinking. They blame the older generation for not keeping them safe and they vote. Della Volpe estimates that 31 percent of those polled voted in the midterms. Doesn't seem like a lot, but in fact, it is nearly double the 2014 midterm turnout for this very same age group. Nonetheless, as Igor Volsky observes in a recent Boston Globe op-ed, 
As the presidential campaign season gears up, contenders have developed an appetite for big, bold goals. They're calling for universal health care, an end to Washington corruption, and action on climate change with a Green New Deal. But that presidential ambition does not extend to guns, Volsky writes. The women and men vying for the highest office still regurgitate NRA talking points or push for incremental policy reforms that feel like we're all living in a time warp. The recent entry of California's Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell into the race with a clarion call for banning and buying back assault-style weapons may have changed that equation somewhat since Volsky's article was published in The Globe. But will it be enough? Or, as some Democrats have long seen it, are gun politics sort of the equivalent of the third rail for Democrats as uh, cuts to Medicare and Social Security used to be uh, for politicians of all parties? Joining us now to discuss all of these matters and how and if they will come into play as the 2020 presidential contest heats up is our old friend Igor Volsky. He is the founder of Guns Down America, an organization dedicated to building a future with fewer guns. His new book, Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns, offers a vision for solving our national gun crisis. Well, we could use such vision. a vision. Uh, Igor Volsky, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here, my friend. Let's start uh, in New Zealand, Igor. There's uh, less than a month ago, uh, we had this shooting, this horrible shooting at this mosque, two mosques, actually. And yet today, less than a month later, assault weapons are now banned across New Zealand. What is different there? Why was it so easy there, Igor? <laughs> well, you know, I think they have a slightly different system of government. They have a weaker gun lobby, although one does exist, and the NRA worked really hard to try to influence the debate there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the other piece here is that, um, uh, you know, what they did, uh, I think, is really important, because New Zealand didn't divide people between good guys and bad guys. And, you know, even here uh, in the United States, even Democrats, talk about disarming dangerous people. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense in a country where two-thirds of the gun deaths are suicide. Mm. Um, and that's also not how any other nation has dealt with, its, with, with a gun problem. So New Zealand said, we're going to change the environment in which guns are uh, produced, right? We're going to ban certain weapons for everybody. We're going to make it harder for people to obtain certain guns. They're now looking at strengthening their licensing systems. And that, I think, really offers a lesson for us here in the States. So whenever you hear a politician of either party talk about, quote-unquote, dangerous people, remember that this is a political framing, right, that's designed to talk to some kind of mythical moderate voter who's going to get so offended if you actually tell the truth and say that the guns are the problem, that they're inherently dangerous, that we need fewer of them. So I think New Zealand really holds a lot of lessons for us, as do, frankly, most other industrialized nations, where this kind of crisis 
isn't an issue anymore. So when you talk about um, uh, identifying, you know, taking away guns from from bad guys, you're saying that is not the way to approach this? I mean, my sense is that when Democrats talk that way, they're trying to say, hey, we're trying to keep you safe from uh, such bad guys, that those bad guys should not have guns at all. Uh, but what you seem to be suggesting is what they're, the message they're trying to send is, hey, we don't want to take away your guns. We just want to take away guns from certain people. And that that sort of attempt to split the baby uh, means we're getting nothing from nobody on, on any of these uh, issues. Well, think of it this way, Brad. We were able to reduce car fatalities, not by changing the behaviors of 200 million drivers every single day, but by making roads safer, by making cars safer, by increasing the standards for car licensing, right? Mm -hmm. And we've been able to drive down car deaths by changing the environment, right? So it was more difficult for everybody. Um, I'm making the same argument here, that what we need to do is raise the standards for gun ownership and mm-hmm. for gun production because when everybody has to play in that kind of new more regulated environment everyone so-called good guys so-called bad guys or dangerous people everybody is safer but you know um, americans uh, say that they want this uh, and i regard you know things like um, universal background checks you talk about being tougher on on regulations well that would seem to start with uh, at the very least, the minimal idea of a background check for everyone who wants to buy a gun. But we cannot even get a vote, uh, despite the popularity of that idea across all parties, across even members of the NRA. We can't even get a vote on that in both houses of Congress, uh, Igor. So uh, how how does changing the language change the equation of the uh, politicians seemingly being in the thrall of the National Rifle Association? Well, the reason why you need a bold idea or the reason why you need a bolder idea Mm -hmm. that include a a long-term goal is because that's what motivates people. That's what excites people, right? That's why Democrats now are talking about a Green New Deal or Mm -hmm single-payer or breaking up the tech companies, those are all long-term goals that we're not going to get to this uh, election cycle or next election cycle, but it gives people a sense of what they're fighting for. It inspires people. There's no such dynamic in the, in the gun control movement. In fact, after the House passed background checks, expanding background checks, mm-hmm. only 16 of 47 Democrats in the Senate even tweeted about it. Mm. Not to mention the fact that they scheduled that vote on the same day that Michael Cohn testified, and so none of the cable news stations talked about it. It was only mentioned once in the Sunday talk shows when Chris Wallace said, hey, nobody even knows this happened. So, you know, yes, it's hard. Everything about this is hard. But we have to start with our own advocates on this issue and pushing them to be bolder, pushing them to actually deliver on the promises they made us after Kirkland. You, uh, you write that expanding background checks to every gun purchase is an essential policy, but by focusing on individual initiatives without establishing a broad, long-term goal, candidates are already bargaining against themselves. 
And I think uh, what I understand you to mean in your references to, for example, the Green New Deal, the Green New Deal goes for it, goes for everything and uh, allows the policy debate then to move forward as far as uh, what is and isn't doable, what we do and do want. Um, If you're calling for that same bold action from, uh, well, from Democrats and Republicans alike when it comes to guns, what would that sound like? What would the uh, rhetoric be that we ought to be hearing from Democrats on the uh, campaign trail right now? Well, I think Democrats need to establish a long-term goal. That goal, I think, should be a future with fewer guns, because guns are inherently dangerous and guns are the problem. And number two, Democrats need to go beyond mere background checks. You mentioned Mm -hmm. 79% of Americans support gun licensing. We also know that gun licensing, unlike background checks, gun licensing that requires you to go to your police station, get fingerprinted, pass a written test, pass a field test, go through a much more comprehensive background check, wait uh, some period of time before obtaining that gun, that that actually reduces both gun homicides and gun suicides. And by the way, the system I described is similar to the system they have in Massachusetts, where they have far fewer gun deaths than, say, neighboring New Hampshire. So I am calling on the 2020 presidential candidates Mm -hmm. to fundamentally reframe the conversation around guns to establish a long-term goal of building a future with fewer guns and to talk about the ways we need to raise the standards for gun ownership, for gun production. And by the way, when I say production, I mean actually regulating the firearm industry mm-hmm. so that it stops producing militarized weapons for the civilian market, both in terms of the assault weapons and the much more militarized handguns that use larger rounds, and those rounds are coming at you faster. Mm-hmm. So. They just need to ask for what they actually want, and frankly, for what our country really needs to save as many lives as possible. I, I should also note, we've, we've spoken on this show over the years about uh, the ability of the gun industry to make smarter weapons, uh, weapons that uh, can't be fired uh, except by their owner or uh, you know other safety features that could be put into place by federal or state regulation the way we had federal regulation for seatbelts and that you know resulted in a huge number of deaths that did not happen thanks to those laws uh americans say they want this but they don't seem to vote that way the nra seems to do a hell of a good job in scaring people um you know that the gun grabbers are coming But it seems that you're arguing Democrats should embrace that idea and, yes, become the party of what the NRA would certainly use to tar them as gun grabbers. Uh, No worries about that politically? Well, look, it doesn't surprise me that folks aren't voting for completely uninspired messaging and policies Mm. that are framed as, First, let's bow down to the Second Amendment, which is, by the way, a bunch of garbage. And two, let's maybe talk a little bit about some background checks here or there and closing some loopholes, and then quickly move on as as fast as possible from the issue. Yes, nobody is going to vote for that kind of message. I agree, which is why I'm calling for a, a much bolder frame and actually a frame that's rooted in the reality of the problem. And then in terms of the political cost of being called a gun grabber, 
look, you know, Brad, you know I started uh, my career on, on uh, covering health care and, mm-hmm. and Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And I remember when the uh, public option was still part of that proposal and Republicans called it socialism. And then the public option right. was taken out and Republicans still called it socialism. Right. Um, <laughs> right? So they're going to say gun grabber no matter what you do, no matter what you say. In fact, in the book, I point out that the first time the NRA registered a position on a gun law was in 1911, and guess what the argument was? Gun grabber. So it's going to continue no matter what. We should not be paying attention to what they say because they're going to say gun grabber regardless. Let me ask you, uh, Igor, you said, uh, just to let you clarify exactly what you meant uh, a moment ago, you said uh, that they're, they're talking about the, the Second Amendment, fears of violating the Second Amendment uh, as garbage. Were you saying the Second Amendment itself was garbage, gar- garbage no, or no, no, fear no. of... I'm not saying the Second... Thank you. I'm not saying yeah. the Second Amendment is garbage. I'm simply saying that this notion that the Second Amendment is incongruent with gun regulation, that that's garbage. The idea that the Second Amendment uh, permits for uh, guns everywhere and for everyone was literally invented by the NRA after 1977. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea was um, was a pariah in legal circles, uh, was a minority view, and they invested millions of dollars into promoting it in legal circles, promoting it on the state level, promoting it in the media, all, of course, culminating in 2008 when the Supreme Court found an individual right to own a firearm, which it had not for uh, a century beforehand. So I'm very clear-minded about the fact that when Democrats or progressives use this frame of, uh, well, we have the Second Amendment and we have to be respectful, that it is playing into the NRA's hands. It is literally repeating their propaganda, mm-hmm. and it is completely divorced from the history of the Second Amendment, um, or even from the Heller precedent, which found, uh, Antonin Scalia wrote this opinion, mm-hmm. and said that the government has a role to play within the Second Amendment to regulate firearms. Uh, I, I know i got to let you go here, but let me see, uh, see if I can fit in uh, one more idea. The uh, newly declared Democratic presidential hopeful, uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, as I mentioned, he is calling for all such weapons to be banned and uh, and bought back, not unlike what they're doing in New Zealand. Uh, do you agree with his advocacy there? And, uh, and are there any other uh, Democratic candidates taking on the issue as boldly as you see it? And I guess finally, will Swalwell advocacy help to push the others on this issue, whether he's uh, uh, got a possibility of, of actually winning the uh, presidential nomination or not? Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope that, that Swalwell pushes the rest of the field. I, I appreciate his comments, and I, I, you know, I'm going to be excited to see in wh- what his gun platform actually looks like. But being bold on this question of assault weapons is a good start. I would argue that he needs to go even further. He needs to redefine for Americans what patriotic gun ownership actually looks like. And I say that it, it looks like an individual who takes responsibility and who's able to show that they can responsibly handle a firearm to their community and to their neighbors. 
That, of course, is gun grabber Igor Volsky, uh, <laughs> author of uh, the, the new book uh, published just this week. Uh, am I correct, Igor? That's right, on Tuesday, yeah. Congratulations. The new book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. An idea who I would argue uh, its time has come. You can get more information at GunsDownAmerica.org. You can follow them on the Twitters at GunsDownAmerica. And I'm sure you can call Igor all sorts of names also on the Twitter at Igor Volsky. Igor, great talking uh, with you, my friend. Great. Thanks so much, Brad. Appreciate it. You bet. More Bradcast Recounted coming up next. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to Bradcast Recounted. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. On Wednesday, Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee voted to hold U.S. Attorney General William Barr in contempt of Congress for his refusal to turn over the full, unredacted report from Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Before they held that vote, Brad spoke with Ted Kahlo, former General Counsel of the House Judiciary Committee, about what might happen next. Here's part of their conversation. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The problem is it's unclear who the law is in this case. Who is actually, is it the nation's top cop, Attorney General William Barr? Is it the folks on the House Judiciary Committee? Everyone seems to be fighting the law. The law may win, but I don't know who... I don't know who decides the laws at this point. All right. On Friday, House Judiciary Committee Jerry Nadler sent what's being described as a final counteroffer to Attorney General Barr to obtain the full version of the special counsel's report, along with an ultimatum. If the Justice Department does not comply, the panel will initiate contempt proceedings. In his letter, Nadler writes the quote, the committee is prepared to make every realistic effort to reach an accommodation with the department. But if the department persists in its baseless refusal to comply with a validly issued subpoena, the committee will move to contempt proceedings and seek further legal recourse. What that further legal recourse might be, that remains unclear. Nadler also asked that DOJ work directly with Congress to seek a court order to release the grand jury material in Mueller's report, which is normally protected from public release uh, or even released to Congress. 
writing that there is precedent for the courts to authorize the release of that material, for example, during the Watergate investigation under Nixon and the Whitewater Independent Counsel investigation under Bill Clinton. Barr, however, suggested in his congressional testimony uh, before the Senate on Wednesday that he has absolutely no interest in seeking the release of those grand jury materials. At the White House on Friday, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders scoffed, saying House Democrats, quote, look ridiculous and silly. And who knows what silly and ridiculous looks like better than Sanders. And all of that comes after Barr advanced a remarkable theory during his Senate testimony that a sitting uh, president may legally and constitutionally shut down any criminal investigation into his own potentially criminal behavior if the president himself believes that he is being falsely accused in that investigation. Yes, the nation's uh, top law enforcement officer actually made that explicit argument during his sworn testimony in the Senate. Well, that's a lot to unpack as the nation moves uh, closer to what seems an inevitable constitutional crisis or two or three. Here to help us unpack it somehow is someone I'm very happy to welcome back to the show. Ted Kahlo is a 14-year veteran of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, serving as its general counsel for the last 10 years of his service there. He left that post, smart him, in 2011 to become COO of LMG Inc., which is a public affairs firm. He also now serves as the executive director of the Artists' Rights Alliance, an artist-run nonprofit advocating for fair treatment of music creators. Ted Kahlo, thanks for uh, joining us on the broadcast, my friend. Thanks for having me, Brad. It it has been a long time, and uh, frankly, what you are doing now sounds way more fun. Uh, Do you you miss being in the middle of of these sorts of constitutional nightmares in Congress, which I think you know very well about from your service during the George W. Bush era? I I guess I have a weird definition of fun. Um, No, this this uh being in the middle of this stuff sounds like a lot of fun really it's very interesting oh um, man uh well we'll uh i'm happy to trade jobs with you anytime ted so <laughs> i've i got a lot of questions about all of this stuff i'm hoping you can help help us cl- try to at least begin to clear up first is it unusual or out of bounds for um staff counsel in addition to actual members of congress to question a witness in a hearing like this uh, this, of course, just after um, that's the reason Barr said he wouldn't talk to the House Judiciary. And it comes, I noticed, just months after Senate Republicans hired an outside attorney to cre- to uh, question Trump's then Supreme Court nominee, now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, it's not unusual at all. Um, you, I mean, you can even look at the House Judiciary Committee uh, during one of the many investigations of uh, Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, behind closed doors, staff questioned Andy McCabe, mm-hmm. Jim Comey, and the AG Loretta Lynch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not uncommon historically. Uh, happened um, in public hearings during Iran Contra. It happened during the Clinton impeachment. It of course happened during the Watergate inquiry. And uh, it, it's a um, uh, it's something that has happened over many years 
very frequently it's not uncommon at all. Does a witness ever have any say in this? In other words, is this something that is usually worked out in advance with the approval of a witness who's showing up voluntarily, as I think Bill Barr was supposed to in this uh, in this case on Thursday at the House Judiciary? Absolutely not. Uh, it, no more than you would have say about how a to a judge about how he wants to run a, a, a court case. Uh, one of Mr. Barr's prosecutors going into a federal criminal court wouldn't uh, pretend to tell a judge how he should run his proceedings. Congress is an independent investigatory body, and they have uh, the, they have complete say over what rules they use in, in hearings. The witness doesn't have any say over those rules. Uh, Nadler now is uh, giving one more chance for the DOJ to turn over. He says one more chance for them to turn over the full Mueller report uh, before suggesting that he would vote to hold, uh, I guess, the DOJ. I don't know if it's the DOJ or Barr himself in contempt for not turning it over. And now, as I understand, that's a separate process from subpoenaing the AG himself to appear before the panel. Uh, which, if he doesn't, then I guess Barr himself would uh, could be held in contempt. Am I understanding that correctly? So, uh, for, for refusing to testify, Barr could be held in contempt um, for his own refusal to testify as mm-hmm. Attorney General. With regard to turning over the full Mueller report, it's whoever is the custodian of the record, who is who has control over the record. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's Barr. Uh, and Barr could be held in contempt for his failure to turn over the record. So what's the holdup here? I mean, he's already missed the deadline for turning over that report, uh, along with, you know, refusing to testify. And and all of this, by the way, after the White House has instructed staffers and former staffers and executive agencies to not answer lawful uh, congressional subpoenas for anything, uh, what's the holdup? Why did they not vote, for example, on Thursday when Barr didn't show up to, to hold this guy in contempt? Any idea? Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a pretty good idea. Um, a key, what happens after you hold someone in contempt? Uh, what can Congress do about it? Those, that's a question that you're going to get to, I imagine. Yes, shortly. I am. Yeah. But, but what, before we get there... One of those possibilities is that you're going to have to go into federal court and file a civil suit to um, essentially have the court to command the official to comply with the subpoena. And we did that with respect to the uh, Bush administration Mm -hmm. and the testimony of Karl Rove and Harriet Myers when I was with the committee. One thing that the courts look at very carefully, because they're not fond of and don't want to be in the full-time job of adjudicating disputes between the executive and legislative branches, Mm -hmm. is have these guys really tried to work this out. So what you're seeing going on uh, publicly is kind of Chairman Nadler bending over backwards to show that he tried his hardest to reach an accommodation with the executive branch Mm -hmm. with an eye towards future litigation. Uh, In our case, the fact that we repeatedly made many permutations of offers for how those officials could testify uh, bore heavily on the court's con- uh, decision in our favor mm-hmm. that we were far more reasonable and they were incredibly recalcitrant and unreasonable. And that kind of um, background made the court 
believed that it was time for it to step in and settle it and indeed settle it in our favor. So while it's frustrating as hell <laughs> yes. to watch this play out and want, you know, it, it's so obvious what's going on in plain sight, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of uh, the the goal of getting the information, Congress has to proceed cautiously because of its limited options for enforcing subpoenas, which uh, I'm sure we're going to discuss. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Um, if, uh, as expected, neither Barr nor DOJ complies here and the, and the House votes to hold Barr in contempt, uh, then what? How is that enforced? Uh, who would enforce it? As I understand it, AP reports that uh, while a contempt vote would make a strong statement, it's unlikely to force the DOJ to hand over the uh, report. A vote of the full House on contempt would send a criminal referral to the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, a Justice Department official who is then likely to defend the administration's interest. Well, who defends the people's interest as uh, represented by Congress in such a case if that contempt citation goes before a judge? Well, I mean, uh, the first thing that you'd say about that is I guess Barr's just not being as transparent as the law allows, like he said he would be in his confirmation hearing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the second thing that you'd say is that the Congress's options are are limited. Um, One option is to have the House authorize uh, the committee to file a civil suit. The civil suit would ask the federal courts to issue an injunction essentially commanding the administration to comply with the subpoena. Uh, another option is what's known as inherent contempt authority, mm-hmm. and that's the notion that because the uh, House has um, uh, constitutional oversight authority, it also has the constitutional authority to enforce its own subpoenas. And historically, that authority was used maybe the last time a century ago. Uh, the House sergeant-at-arms would place somebody under arrest and detain them until they complied with the subpoena. The, so I think you've laid it out. The U.S. attorney is not going to, he's going to decline to prosecute the criminal case, even though the statute says the U.S. attorney shall uh, prosecute the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Democratic and Republican administrations have declined to do so. And then the House has two options, as I see them in the current set of rules, which are to uh, file a civil suit or exercise this inherent contempt authority. All right, let's look at those two options. Uh, I'm presuming that a civil suit would be the one they would try first before this inherent contempt business and ordering the sergeant-at-arms to actually go out and arrest the attorney general. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. But So a a civil suit, would that be the more likely uh, next step in such a case? Under the current rules, that would be the most likely uh, case. I, they would go to federal court uh-huh. and file a suit and ask the federal court to command the attorney general to comply with the subpoenas. And that is w- what the most likely outcome is he- here. And I kind of think, all right, well, the uh, federal court and what army is going to, to force uh, any of these folks to force the attorney general to comply. I mean, wh- what then when he also refuses to comply there? Is that when we get into a matter of uh, financial penalties for not complying? 
So I, I think then you're in contempt of the federal courts, and there are very serious criminal and civil penalties that are enforceable. Uh, the real issue with the uh, civil suit is that it takes so damn long. Um, How long does it take? What are we talking about? I've heard that this is going to be a long court battle. How long are we talking about? So, you know, looking at recent cases, these, it, it can take as long as two years. Here, I think there's a, a avenue for the House to tell the courts to hurry up. And what, what I think they should argue to the court is that we're dealing with an attack on our democracy and the last ele- in the 2016 presidential election. Mm-hmm. That attack was ongoing in the 2018 election, and it's ongoing for the 2020 election. The House is actively looking at what legislative solutions it can offer to help thwart that attack on our democracy. This is an emergency. It's, a, it's an exigent circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the courts need to view this uh, in that way and accelerate the process by which parties file their suits, replies are are, are uh, submitted, and oral arguments proceed. I think they need to go to court and tell them to hurry it up. Hurry up. I think they also need to look at um, how they can augment the existing rules that they have to perhaps allow the House in its um, uh, inherent authorities to enforce its own subpoenas for the House to impose fines and, uh, uh, and impose other penalties on people who are, compli- who are not complying with subpoenas. Um, I think they ought to look very carefully at the appropriations process about cutting off funding for offices that aren't complying with congressional subpoenas. I think they need to pinch the executive branch very hard on these issues and try and um, speed up the clock to get these subpoenas complied with. Well, you raise a whole bunch of <laughs> new questions for me then. A, expedited um, uh, motions here on an emergency basis, even if they uh, a court complied with that or agreed with that, then a procedure that might normally take two years would then take how long under an expedited basis? Are we talking about weeks, months? Yeah, I, th- I think a court could resolve this in a matter of two to three months. I mean, the question of whether Barr has to show up, mm-hmm. if that's the question we're dealing with, that, that question was settled in the Myers case, that executive branch officials, in that case it was the close advisors of the president, which was an even more difficult question uh-huh. about whether they have to respond to congressional subpoenas, that a cabinet officer has to show up to the Committee of Oversight, that's not even a close call. So uh, I, I think you could uh, resolve that question, that um, case relatively quickly. Yeah. I think on the you know the Mueller report questions, I, I think the court could figure out a way of uh, looking at the different categories of redactions and figuring out what uh, which ones are reasonable and what materials could be turned over. I could see a strong argument for court saying that Congress might not need to have unfettered access to information about an ongoing matter, which I read that redaction to be the Mm -hmm. Roger Stone WikiLeaks Mm -hmm. case. Uh, But um, on some of the other uh, things, for example, embarrassment to third parties, it seems, look, we all know who the third parties are here, right? 
I mean, we know that that Donald Trump Jr. was the subject of the investigation. We know Jared Kushner mm-hmm. was uh, was was part of this investigation. I, I think the court's unlikely to find that the disclosure of their names would cause them embarrassment, as though they were capable of embarrassment. <laughs> but uh, and then on the grand jury uh, information, you know, all of the policy arguments that would lead a court to keep grand jury information secret. Yeah to me, are outweighed by the public interest in disclosure, and courts have found that in the past. Grand jury information is passed on to things like uh, bar disciplinary committees looking at whether lawyers should keep their licenses, that it wouldn't be passed on to the United States Congress in a case like this is a real stretch. I... You uh, you referred a few times to a uh, precedent that, you know, with the Harriet Myers case, with the uh, previous I mentioned, you know, the, the grand jury material turned over in the, the Clinton and uh, Nixon impeachments and so forth. But you had Donald Trump tweeting out the other day that, you know, if Democrats uh, try to impeach me, I will go to the Supreme Court. Now, of course, there is no uh, constitutional uh, place for the Supreme Court, as far as I know, in in those sorts of impeachment proceedings other than the chief justice presiding over a trial in the Senate. But is there... We talk about these precedents as if, oh, we know all of this stuff. We know what's going to happen when these cases go before the, the, the courts and, uh, you know, Trump's ridiculous suits uh, against Deutsche Bank and Capital One to keep them from turning over these lawfully subpoenaed documents. Uh, that's going to be tossed out. We think we know all of that. But, Ted, this guy and these Republicans now have a stolen majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. Does that change the equations of what we think is uh, a precedent here? Do you have any reason to believe they're going to, you know, that they won't take it all the way up to the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court won't uh, find in favor of the, the Trump regime here? Well, there are kind of two. The, the question is, what are, what's the case we're talking about? Is the case what Trump's tweet said that if the if the Democrats try and impeach me, I'm going to call up the Supreme Court and tell them to stop it. Right. That ain't going to happen. I mean, right. the, the, it would be a very interesting ruling for Supreme Court justices to get around the congressional language that the I mean, the constitutional language that the Congress has the sole power of impeachment. Well, I, I mean, just on in these general. Other, on, on, on these on, other yeah. cases, yeah. on these other cases, I, I think you're right. We have a federal judiciary that's been packed by people who uh, who start with the political result they want and then work the legal reasoning backwards. Uh, and I think it's it's a valid fear that the courts won't follow what long-standing precedent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I continue to believe that the courts will. Uh, that ultimately there's a majority on the Supreme Court that believes in the separation of powers, that won't do whatever Trump says. And on matters such as, should a uh, cabinet-level official show up to testify before a committee, and is a committee entitled to information that it gets as a matter of uh, routinely, uh, they will decide that in favor of the committee. If it's heading up to the Supreme Court, the problem is we're it's taken so much time, mm-hmm. and we're well past the next presidential election. 
which really shows the weakness in enforcing congressional subpoenas and is a very unsatisfying result. Which brings us to the other point you were making, the other option, not going the civil route in court, but in what's called inherent contempt. And we talked a lot about this during the the Bush years. I remember uh, years ago, your old boss, then House Judiciary Chair John Conyers, uh, had told me that there was a jail in the Capitol and that the sergeant of arms could be directed to arrest someone and uh, for contempt and held in that jail for contempt. Is that jail still there, Ted Kahlo? And is such a thing even a, a possibility? Has it ever been done? So there never was a jail there. Uh, there was something that was referred to as uh, it was a historical misunderstanding that there was something that was referred to as a congressional jail. Uh-huh. It wasn't for this purpose. It was over by where the Supreme Court building is now. What has been done in the past uh, when uh, the inherent contempt authority has been used is they've essentially put up the detainee in a nearby hotel room. Okay. Uh, so let's forget about the jail. That's how it would work. Uh, and I think the, the, uh, the really um, kind of difficult question here with respect to the attorney general as opposed to a private citizen is do we really think it's a, a realistic, a good thing, uh, resolvable if the sergeant-at-arms is doing combat with the FBI detail that's protecting the attorney general <laughs> right. to stop him from being taken to a hotel? I just don't see that happening. So the only choice is the courts, it seems, and that could, even under an expedited basis, could run for months and months, get us into the next election, and this is just going to be a protracted uh, battle of wills, essentially, between the, the, the Democrats and the administration, as you see it? I, I think that's where we're headed with regard to the administration's intransigence. Uh But what that misses is just a truth, which is that there are no secrets in Washington. And we we, we sat around for the last six to eight weeks saying, you know, come on, if Mueller, you saw it on Fox News repeatedly, Mm -hmm. or you probably didn't because that's not your... um, entertainment diet oh no it I, is more than more than uh, you would think and more than I'm, i wish but yeah i'm so sorry man <laughs> yeah i appreciate um, that <laughs> but the uh uh they said over and over and over if Mueller has a problem with what Barr's doing yeah wouldn't he be speaking up well he did right. and the truth came out that report is not going to remain a secret the the uh trump administration could try as hard as it would like to keep it a secret but one way or the other, I think we're going to know a lot more about what's in that report before the election, whether it's through the courts or whether it's through the free press. All right. Last uh, th- uh, thought here. And uh, I, w- I want to get your thoughts on this because this was kind of extraordinary uh, during his. I think it was extraordinary. You'll correct me, Ted Kahlo, uh, during his. Uh, Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Wednesday, Barr, Attorney General Barr, was responding to Senator Pat Leahy. He explained uh, his, to say the least, controversial view on executive power and obstruction, outlining this theory that a president's interference in an investigation, including shutting it down entirely if he wants, cannot be obstruction of justice if it was a constitutionally authorized action like 
uh, a president is allowed to fire an FBI director. And I think most controversially here, um, if the president was doing so because he thought that the investigation was based on false allegations. In other words, the president on his own decision has the right to shut down any investigation he wants into himself if he doesn't like it. Here, here's Barr's explanation of that theory, and I'll get your comments, Ted. In the situation of the president, who has constitutional authority to supervise proceedings, if in fact a proceeding was not well-founded, if it was a groundless proceeding, if it was based on false allegations, uh, the president does not have to sit there constitutionally and allow it to run its course. The president could terminate that proceeding, and it would not be a corrupt intent because he was being falsely accused, and he would be worried about the impact on his administration. That's important because most of the obstruction uh, claims that are being made here or, or episodes do involve the exercise of the president's constitutional authority, and we now know that he was being falsely accused. Okay, so setting aside uh, the idea that the Constitution gives no authority to, to my knowledge, for a president to instruct his White House counsel to create a false false documents to cover up lies during an investigation into those lies, or to pay off his personal lawyer as part of a conspiracy to cover up campaign finance felonies in paying hush money to a porn star just before an election. Uh, setting all of that aside, your thoughts on Barr's theory here that a president has the constitutional authority to simply uh, decide on his own when he's being falsely accused and just shut down any DOJ investigation if he feels like, as was asserted there from the nation's top law enforcement officer. I have no idea what legal basis there could be for asserting that the president has an unfettered ability to do that. I also think the hypothetical that Barr's articulating is ridiculous in another respect that you didn't mention. There was a crime here. There's a crime articulated in the Mueller report. There are many crimes. They were being committed by the Russians. Uh, and a president can't obstruct justice. The, the narrative that the Mueller report lays out is that the president uh, was afraid of that if the special counsel discovered all the Russian criming, <laughs> that it would make his uh, election look illegitimate, and therefore he was angry, uh -huh. and he was shutting it down. That is, by definition, a corrupt intent. You can obstruct justice trying to cover up someone else's crime. Uh, so I think the hypothetical itself is ridiculous, but I know of no legal authority for what the attorney general is saying. And it defies reason. Members of Congress are allowed to, given the constitutional authority to vote. Do they have the constitutional authority to take bribes for their votes? They don't. You, every uh, authority that a, um, is delegated to anyone in the Constitution has to be done consistent with their oath of office, and they can't abuse those powers they're given. He, I, I don't know of any lawyer who could justify that argument. Well, the nation's top lawyer just did. Uh, and also, uh, setting aside the notion that he, uh, Barr, uh, said, you know, s states there that, oh, the president was falsely accused. But since the president obstructed 
the investigation, as far as we can tell, how do we know that the original charges are not true, as Barr seems to be simply taking for granted there? That's the point, right? Uh, I mean, that's what's so absurd about it is, isn't that the point of the obstructing to make it super hard to, to prove the crime? And if criminal defendants were allowed to say, well, you didn't prove an underlying crime here, and I just did the obstructing because I thought, you know, there was nothing there, and see, you didn't prove it, you know, uh, that's the point of the obstructing. Yeah. Uh, that's the whole, yeah. if, I, if I'm accused of tax evasion, and I take a torch to every financial record I have, and you can't prove the tax evasion, but you can prove that I destroyed all my financial records, do I say, hey, there's no crime there, so there's no obstruction? Yeah. It's absurd. Yeah, you do now. That's apparently the new rules. Okay. That's, uh, feel free. We'll let the defense bar know. Yeah, let uh, light it up. Uh, Ted, you spent uh, years as the uh, general counsel for the U.S. House Judiciary Committee uh, under during George W. Bush. I thought at that time what we were looking at was unprecedentedly troubling uh, with that. This seems... Even worse, do you share that opinion uh, as as I let you go here? <laughs> I think we it, it can't be understated that we're in a constitutional crisis, and uh, we're trying to respond to things that were we we never expected to occur from a president of the United States, and um, that makes it all very troubling and unpredictable. Worse than W. By far. Ted Kahlo, 14-year veteran of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, uh, served as its general counsel for the last 10 years of that service. Ted Kahlo, great talking to you, my friend. Hope you don't mind if we bother you again in the future. You have been very helpful in uh, helping us clarify and understand what the hell is going on here. Thanks, Brad. You bet. Thank you. You can find Ted and uh, harangue him on the Twitters if you like. He is TedWord23. Thank you, sir. And that is it for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks to our guest today, Ted Kahlo, former general counsel for the House Judiciary Committee, and Igor Volsky of Guns Down America. And of course, to you for spending part of your day with us. It is our honor and privilege. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Drop us an email and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. And as ever, our thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay independent on your public airwaves. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Good luck, world. <laughs>